what sets human flourishing above all unless we, as humans, have inherent value. But again, that presupposes a transcendent standard. Hey guys, I'm Bill Westers, and this is the Encountering Truth Podcast. What is morality, and where does it come from? Welcome to the Encountering Truth Podcast, where we examine the evidence for Christianity, engage culture with kindness and conviction, and encounter Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I'm your host, Bill Westers, and in this episode, we are going to jump back uh, and take one more look at the moral argument for God's existence. If you remember a couple episodes back, uh, we, we introduced and framed the moral argument for God's existence this way. We said that if there is no God, there is no objective morality. But there is objective morality, therefore there is a God. But in this episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the moral argument and actually even look at a common objection to the moral argument and see where that kind of falls a little bit flat as an objection to this idea of objective morality and where it comes from. So in order to address these objections, we're going to start with a dress. <laughs> All right, so if you remember, think back with me, okay, to uh, I believe it was like 2015. You remember the dress that broke the internet? Uh, if you're not aware of what this was, there was this picture of a dress that was taken um, by someone in like England and uh, sent, it was, it was the mother of a bride-to-be uh, picking out a dress that she was going to wear to her daughter's wedding. And she took a picture of this dress, sent it to her uh, daughter, and asked her opinion about it. And they completely disagreed with the color of what the actual color of the dress was. She was shocked to find out that the daughter in the, from the, uh, saw the picture and saw the dress as a completely different color than what she saw the dress was in person. This dress appeared blue and black to some people, and it appeared white and gold to some other people. So the question is, which was it? This became a viral phenomenon. It went worldwide, and everybody was freaking out about the color of this dress. They call it the dress that broke the internet. And... Uh, but what was it about this image that just drove everybody nuts? Did, did the dress change color? Because everybody was viewing it as different colors. Was it blue and black? Was it white and gold? Was it something else? Was it somehow both color options, blue and black and white and gold somehow? No. Then why did it break the internet? Why did it get so viral? Well, because everybody knew there was a right answer to the question about what color the actual dress was. So it didn't matter how that dress appeared to some or to others. The correct answer did not lie 
in the mind of the subject doing the person doing the observing of the dress. So everybody wanted to know. Everybody knew this. Everybody knew that there was a right answer. And everybody wanted to know what is the real color of this dress. And that answer could only be found in the object, that is the actual dress itself in person, regardless of how people perceived it uh, in the picture. And so that's why everyone went so crazy, because they knew deep down inside that there was an objectively right answer, but it drove everybody nuts because they couldn't figure out what the right answer was from their subjective point of view. Now, 57% saw the dress as blue and black. About 30% saw the dress as white and gold. And 11%, actually, this was me, saw we saw the dress in like a blue and brownish color. Uh, and so to me, it wasn't black and blue at all or white and gold. It was blue, but it had more of a brownish color. Uh, maybe a shimmery brown color in my eyes. Um, but anyway, so 2% then said, you know, had something else. But uh, does it matter? The question is, does it matter how many people saw it in a particular way? Well, of course it doesn't. Why? Because although that, that picture may have skewed the color a bit and caused people to view it and see it in different ways, the actual dress itself was blue and black. So how people perceived the color of the dress in the picture quite literally depended on the lens through which they saw it, the actual lens of their physical eyes. And then, of course, how their brain interpreted what they saw. Now, this is actually a lot like what morality is like. That there is a real right and wrong, a real moral and immoral out there. And different people, different cultures, different societies, they might view differently what that would be. But just because they view it differently doesn't mean it changes depending on who is analyzing it. Much like the dress didn't change colors based on who was viewing it. There wasn't multiple right answers. It also doesn't mean that the, the majority culture or society gets to determine what is right and wrong. Just like 57% believe the dress was blue and black. Now it was, but was it because the majority said it was? Of course not. It, the actual object itself, the dress, was blue and black in reality. And so their view happened to line up with reality versus the 30% that saw it as gold and white their view did not line up with what was true and real. The standard exists outside of them. It rests in the object. Changing one's mind or opinion or society's opinion about it is not going to change the subject, whether that's address or whether that's objective morality. So, what is morality? Morality, according to the dictionary definition, is principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Uh, another definition puts it this way. It's the extent to which an action is right or wrong. Now, the very definition 
of the word morality shows that it cannot exist without a standard by which to make a distinction or measure the extent to which that action is right or wrong. In fact, there is no such thing as morality, good, evil, right, wrong, moral, immoral, if there is no standard by which to measure it. It simply could not exist. Even if morality were relative or subjective, is another word for that, there's still a standard. In fact, there's actually, in that case, many standards developed by numerous individuals or groups of individuals. And the problem is that, in that view, that nobody could hold their standard over anybody else because that's really actually just the definition of subjective. It's anchored in the self, the individual, or the group of individuals. So some may say the goal of morality, then, is human flourishing or well-being. Well, morality itself cannot actually even have a goal. A goal or a telos must come from a mind. Therefore, the goal of a moral standard must come from the mind of the one who set the standard. If the mind behind the standard is in that of an individual or a group of individuals, that would make the subject, uh, the standard subjective, as in grounded in the subject. It would be relative, which means it could change from person to person, subject to subject. It could change as they change their minds. And this is actually what Greg Kokel, in his fabulous book, Street Smarts, calls the inside-outside distinction. And a lot of the arguments, a lot of this stuff uh, is really clearly laid out in Greg Kokel's newest book. You need to pick it up. It's so great, so clearly laid out. And I'll put that in the show notes for you. Uh, but great book. But this is what he calls the inside-outside definition. He says, if the truth maker, the condition that makes the statement true, is something about the object itself, something outside of us, so to speak, unrelated to our own thoughts, desires, feelings, or beliefs, then the truth is an objective truth. Just like what made the statement true that the dress was blue and black was that it was about the object itself. Unrelated to my own thoughts or your thoughts or anybody's desires or feelings, we couldn't change that. That was an objective fact about that dress, that it was blue and black. And then he goes on to say that if the truth you have in mind can change simply by changing your mind, then that truth, quote-unquote truth, is only in your mind. It's not in the world. It's on the inside, not the outside, and that's relativism. Now, one argument or one of the common objections to the moral argument is that morality can exist on its own without the need for a God as a moral law giver. Some people make the argument that morality comes from agreed-upon standards within a society or a social grouping, with, of course, as we mentioned, the end goal being that human flourishing or well-being. But we have to ask, what, what would that person mean? We ask the person, what do you mean by agreed-upon standards? Because I'm fairly certain that this is the very issue 
that we're struggling with here, that people do not agree upon standards. Secondly, if these standards are agreed upon, then why would people choose to agree on these particular standards? How would these standards be selected? It seems to me that there would have to be some sort of transcendent standard by which to determine whether or not these subjective standards that are being selected, chosen, would actually best align to. So otherwise, it would just be, again, down to personal preference that we just like these better, regardless of what you think. And then this idea of a, a, a goal of human flourishing or well-being, I mean, it sounds all great and like, oh, it's just the perfect solution, right? But the problem is, is that you're starting at the end of the argument instead of at the beginning. You say you're working towards something that is good, but you haven't determined why it could be considered good in the first place. Why would human flourishing be automatically considered good? Why not animal flourishing or plant flourishing? Or for that matter, why not just inanimate objects? What sets human flourishing above all unless we, as humans, have inherent value? But again, that presupposes a transcendent standard. And then who gets to determine how human flourishing is defined? You know, we mentioned in our, one of our previous episodes that Hitler had his idea of human flourishing. That's what the Holocaust was all about, wasn't it? His idea that to annihilate what he called the inferior race so that the master race, according to him, could flourish. Look, there would be no logical way that anyone could rightly be held accountable for violating the standard. These different individuals and different cultures would be able to hold their own agreed-upon standard. How then would it be determined which groups or which cultures' standards were authoritative? The one would be the one with the most people, the majority, the largest culture or society? Or would it be the one with the most power and military force to enforce it on other people? Right? Or maybe it would be the one uh, that would be resulting in the most human flourishing. Oh, that one sounds good, doesn't it? Except the problem is, again, whose definition of flourishing would that be? And... How would flourishing be measured or weighed other than against a standard? Which again would have to be a transcendent standard above and beyond all other possible standards. Also, if it's the majority, why the majority? Or even why those with more power? Would it not be valued to elevate the ideas and the authority of a weaker minority or those to, uh, and allow those to determine the standard? If the moral standard uh, were subject to some agreed-upon values of individuals or groups of individuals, you would not be able to even say that the Nazis were wrong. They did what was morally acceptable 
in their culture, agreed upon in their culture, according to their subjective moral standard. So were the Nazis then determined to be wrong only because they lost the war? Well, if let's talk about the Nuremberg trials. After World War II, they held the Nuremberg trials and put the Nazis on trial for crimes against humanity. But were the Nuremberg trials just holding them, the Nazis, accountable to our moral law? Or to a higher moral law that was transcendent and applies to all cultures, regardless of what an individual's culture says is morally acceptable? Another thing to think about here is that if the goal is more human flourishing, then what does that even mean? Does that mean more flourishing for some humans? Or does that mean more humans flourishing, maybe at the detriment of others? That even if some, uh, if that means that some don't flourish as much as others. So how do we determine or define or measure that without an external transcendent standard? Uh, another question, does abortion lead to human flourishing? Because I would say that there's about 63 million humans that would beg to differ with that, whose voices cry out from the grave and say, where was my opportunity to flourish? How do we determine which humans get to flourish and then we can take it a step farther you know one question you could ask a skeptic who follows this line of thinking is that if let's say that if virtually the entire country or even the entire world became christian would it be right for them to mandate that everyone confess christianity get baptized and go to church regularly my guess is that the skeptic, the atheist, would probably say most certainly no. But why? Why would that not be right in their eyes? So then you could ask them, well, okay, why not? Is it just because it's your preference? Because you wouldn't like that? Well, maybe, maybe they would say because it's not true in their eyes. Well... But that, too, even supposes a, a, a presupposes a standard that true is better than false. And what if it is a useful delusion that does actually lead to more human flourishing? If the vast majority agreed upon it as a standard of morality and a way for humans to flourish, then in order to reject that, you would have to appeal to a higher authority. And what could be a higher authority if the vast majority of the entire population of the world already agreed and affirmed it. You're getting yourself in trouble here. Okay. Would it then come down to a more, more powerful minority like we mentioned earlier? And in that case, is the more powerful minority, if, if they use their military force to make sure that everyone was uh, not following Christianity or not going to church and believing and getting baptized, well, would that be morally right? And again, if there's no objective standard, then why would any individual or group be held to someone else's preferences?
And if society is who determines what is morally right and morally wrong, then how many people in the society would have to agree that this would be morally right or wrong? And where is that agreement taking place? Is there some sort of secret meetings of some authoritative moral council that this is what's moral and this is not moral? And we have to uh, condition our population to believe what we have decided in this council. No, of course not. Does it happen in the government? Well, our own government can't agree on anything, much less from one country to another, one government to another, to get everybody to come to some sort of consensus. And if the government agrees upon and determines what is moral, then how could every, anyone ever even oppose the government without being considered immoral? You see the problem here? And if not the number in agreement, then how much power would it take? Another question you could ask is, is whether or not they think that uh, chattel slavery was morally good. Of course they would reject this idea. Hopefully. But if the majority said had a pre-agreed standard that said it was fine, wouldn't it be immoral to go against that if they were the ones that said it? If the majority is who makes something moral, then the majority can never be wrong. You could ask whether or not they approve of homosexuality or homosexual behavior and gay marriage. And if they do, well, ask why. Do they think this is because it helps human flourishing and well-being? Homosexual behavior and gay marriage does not aid in overall human flourishing. In fact, it would actually do the opposite. It goes against natural law, leading to the human extinction. Because humans cannot reproduce in those same-sex relationships. So they might actually, they might make individuals happier in the short term, but how does this help society flourish if its, if its end result would be the extinguishing of the human race? And then you could ask about whether or not our culture today, or society today, is better or more morally good than it was 100, 200 years ago when there was slavery, there was no gay marriage, you know, these things. Um, and have, have we seen moral progress? And if they say yes, ask them how so. Is it because society has improved their morals? Well, how do we know if they've improved? Because they say so? Because today's morals are more aligned to modern people's preferences? If society is the ultimate arbiter of moral truth, then when it changes its ideas about moral truth, then it's not better, it's just different. If there is no external standard by which to measure progress or no transcendent goal to strive toward, there can be no such thing as moral improvement. You have to have an external standard outside of society, outside of the grouping of individuals or the, the self. Now, let me tell you what we are not saying here. We are not saying that you have to believe in God to know right from wrong. In fact, it's actually part of the Christian worldview. Romans 2.15 
says that the law is written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to it. So now we might not all agree on every detail about what is right and wrong, but we would all argue that there are some things that are morally wrong regardless of personal opinion. Some would go so far as to say, well, of course we know what's right and wrong. It's just common sense. We don't need God for that. But there's an important distinction to be made here. Okay, because common sense tells us how we know something is true, but we don't, it doesn't tell us where it came from in the first place. Think about a speed limit sign. And this is an illustration that Greg Kokel uses in his book, Street Smarts. Think about a street limit sign on your street. What's, what's the speed limit? 25 miles an hour, we'll say. Okay, um, but a speed limit sign tells us how we or is is how we know what the speed limit is but where do speed limit signs come from in the first place a governing authority so what governing authority sets the rules that our common sense tells us that we ought to obey another thing that we're not saying here is that you have to believe in god in order to be a moral person. You don't. You most certainly do not have to believe in God to be a moral person. And atheists can still do moral actions. They can still tell the truth, love their neighbor, be faithful to their spouse, uh, help the poor and needy, and so on. However, going back to the, the illustration of the speed limit signs, that if there is no governing authority behind the signs to put them there in the first place, and you, you could still drive 25 miles an hour, but you couldn't call yourself a law-abiding citizen. You would just be driving 25, just doing the action. The fact is, is that if there were no God, you could still do those behaviors. Tell the truth, help the poor, be faithful to your spouse. You know, you could still do those things, but you, you just would not be able to call them virtuous or moral. They would simply just be actions based on your preferences. So in another illustration that he uses in his book, Street Smarts, is that of readers and writers. Now, you do not have to believe in the existence of writers in order to have the skill and know-how to read something, to carry out that action of reading. But the problem is, is that if there were no writers, there would be nothing for us to be able to read. So the Christian worldview holds the best explanation of reality. It's the only place that you can find true hope in this world. See, everybody is in immediate, immediately in touch with the idea that there is something morally wrong in this world. It is the problem of evil. But it's not Christianity's problem. It's atheism's problem. See, the Christian worldview expects it. There is objective evil in the world because mankind rebelled against God's perfect standard of goodness. The problem for atheists is that if God doesn't exist then there's no transcendent standard of goodness outside of an individual's personal preference. 
and therefore they can't complain about the problem of objective evil because if there is no God, there is no evil or there's no good. There just is. And everything would be based off of preferences. I like this, you like that. So for the Christian, the existence of evil in the world, ironically, can actually give us comfort in knowing that if evil exists, then God must exist. And not only that, but that God is good. He is his very nature is the good and perfect moral standard. The straight line, the very standard of goodness without which nothing would even be considered evil. So no matter what evil befalls us, what horrible things happen to us or what terrible evil that we observe in this world, we can know that God in his goodness is there, Emmanuel, God with us. He is walking alongside us. And we can say, as the psalmist David says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Encountering Truth podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends. And, and just take a moment right now and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, hit the bell icon so that you're notified every time uh, a new episode drops. And also make sure to visit our website, EncounteringTruth.org. You'll find our, our blog posts there. You'll find links to the YouTube channel, to the podcast, the Facebook page. Uh, and, and, and follow us. Go to our Facebook page. Follow us on there. And all this really helps to get the word out so that we can reach more people. So remember, let's make it our goal to examine the evidence, engage culture, and encounter Jesus. God bless. We'll see you next time.